This is the Sports Psychology Hour with Dr. Andrew Jacobs. I cannot express the gratitude what my son came and visited you. Dr. Jacobs has been in practice for 37 years as a sports psychologist. I have seen a change in youth sports in the last 10, 15 years. I've talked about it a lot on this show. The Sports Psychology Hour. The best advice on the radio each and every week. Failure and losing and screwing up is something that happens in life. It happens in sports. And I think we have to teach kids how to do that more effectively. This is where sports talk gets real. That word playing, it's gone from our society in a lot of ways with kids. And now here's your host, Dr. Andrew Jacobs. Good morning, everybody. I'm sports psychologist, Dr. Andrew Jacobs. Welcome to our show at Sports Radio 810 WHB in Kansas City, our flagship station. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. And as you know, I'm here every week talking about your mind, your attitude, and how that affects your performance on and off the athletic field. I've been doing this show for 29 years, the last 19 years here at Sports Radio 810 WHB, and our shows around the country in a number of cities. And we've just uh, gotten on with a station down in the University of Florida, does all their games down in Gainesville, Florida, so I'm excited to bring them onto our uh, family of stations. The show's growing, and look forward to doing this show with you each week because we talk about sports psychology. And what, what is sports psychology? It's the, it's the psychology of sport, okay? What's that mean? How you deal with attitudes and confidence and mindsets, winning and losing, success and failure. How you deal with, with sports injuries. How you deal with parents. How you deal with coaches who get a little bit out of control. What do you do if you fail and screw up and lose? How do you come back from that? We talk about these things on this show every week. This is my 29th year on radio here in the Kansas City area. And as I said, my 19th year here with Sports Radio 810 WHB. And in the last year and a half, we've started getting the show on around the country. I think this is a show a lot of people have sent me emails about that like listening to it. Our shows are podcasted on my website, which is winnersunlimited.com. They're on SoundCloud, and they're also here at Sports Radio 810 WHB. Today, we're going to have a fun show because I have a guest in studio with me. His name is Dr. Neil Erickson. He's the team physician for our MLS team here in Kansas City, Sporting Kansas City, since their inception in 1995. He's also the founder of a program called Elite Physicals, where they work with business executives and help them get, get them in shape. And he's been in a private practice as a family physician at St. Joseph Medical Center here in Kansas City. So, Neil, thanks for joining me this morning. Good morning, Dr. Jacobs. So tell me, sports psychology has been around for a while. As you know, I'm one of the first people in the country in this. You deal with pro athletes. You deal with weekend warriors. You deal with kids. How important is the psychological side when you're dealing with all these people coming in to deal with injuries or their health? It's probably one of the most significant factors that it's difficult to control for. A lot of kids can train and go to the gym or work with the individual trainer, but most of them don't look at the psychological component. And that ability to push through when you're fatigued or to not make mental errors or to handle difficulties with defeat and to handle success. I think a lot of people have a difficult time with that. You can be the most talented player on the field but not have the most success because you don't have that mental toughness you know i like to say you can have two athletes who are physically the same but the one with a stronger mind will come out on top what do you think about that absolutely agree uh, there's a lot more to it than just being the strongest fastest athlete on the field and no question it's important to have that psychological component um, worked out when you're working with pro athletes and you you see a lot of them not just soccer players but other other sports as well where does the psychological component come in especially with injury treatment and prevention and, and recovery well, you, you raise a good point. When somebody gets injured, if they've been doing well for their whole life and suddenly have an injury, it's very interesting to see how their recovery is affected by their psychological 
makeup. Some people find it as the next, the next challenge. Some people feel defeated and have a hard time turning that around. So we often have to work with them to help them get through that component. And usually, interestingly, when you do that, they become a better athlete after the fact. On the flip side, a lot of times we push the kids too hard, too early. Their brains aren't ready to handle that kind of mental toughness. Just like their muscles may not be fully developed, their brain psychology is not fully developed with, at you know 10 to 15 years of age, but we're expecting them to do that, to compete at that level on an ongoing basis throughout the year in one sport pot potentially. And so a lot of times they can't handle that mental toughness. So the parents may expect it, uh, and they may even physically look like they're more mature than they are, but mentally oftentimes they're just not there. Yesterday in my office I had a new client who is a high school baseball player, and he was referred to me by uh, the team physician with the Kansas City Royals. And he's seeing me because he has a, an elbow injury. He's got to have surgery on it from overuse. He's a high school freshman. He has a brother who's now in college who's a pitcher who had Tommy John surgery a couple years ago as a pitcher. Okay, so I'm sitting there thinking about this as, as I was uh, preparing for our show today. The overuse injuries on youth sports now are becoming a problem. And I, I, I'm hearing it more and more from several physicians who refer clients to me, and we've talked about it as well, okay? Youth sports is a huge business, and it's a money business. Someone, people are making money on youth sports, and, and we're seeing leagues starting at younger and younger ages. I, you and I both presented at a symposium a week ago, and I mentioned in the symposium something I've said on this show many times. We're getting to the point now, I be, and I really believe this, I'm not joking, I think there will eventually be a league for pregnant women. <laughs> You're laughing. But but we're getting, you know, there's a soccer company here in the Kansas City area that has tournaments for two-year-olds. Yep. It, right? You, you know, oh, but, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's like, why? Why, as a physician, why, do we, why are we doing that? Well, I think people want to be active, and I understand people want to be participating in activities and sports, and parents want their kids to get that best opportunity. I don't have a problem with them playing soccer at two. I'd rather they did it on the playground or in the neighborhood. I think when you're organizing it, it just automatically increases that stress. Even though the parents may say, we're doing it for fun, the kids will feel that pressure innately, and they'll start to put pressure on themselves. And so I think that doing our best to keep it just for fun and for play at that young age is important. And I also think, we've talked many times, year-round in one sport is going to lead to injuries. You talked about that baseball player. Of course his arm is injured. Why, why would you expect anything different when you put that much strain on that one joint for an entire year without a rest? And I, I do think that that specialization and that early age initiation of the sport is a major component for all these injuries that we never saw before. So why do you think parents are allowing their kids to do that? Is it their ego? Is it, is it their goal of getting their child a scholarship or maybe the the dream of playing professionally you work with pro athletes with our soccer team here in Kansas City I mean several have been homegrown Mappies or Sassanovic who played for this team grew up here so right. do you do you see that a lot at, in your practice and with the people you work with I don't see the parental pressure for the vast majority of people uh, I think they want their kids to be active I don't think many parents see their five-year-old as the next pro maybe there are a few I think that just grows as that child has success. I think it's, it is a business, as you said. There are people who now can profit from those activities, and they find that, hey, if I get these kids to participate once a week, I can charge a certain fee. If I do it three or four times a week, I don't, again, I don't think that there's intent from them even to over, 
trained, but it just and, becomes, and nor, and nor am I, and nor am I insinuating right. that either. I understand. I'm not saying I just, that. it just, it just becomes easy to justify. Well, if we train more, we'll be better. In a short period of time, that may be true, but when you add that up over a year, that overtraining becomes a problem. And certainly, many youth leagues are trying to figure out how that balance works best. And I've, my own children have worked in, with quote competitive leagues that have backed off on some of the year-round part. They want you to participate in the off-season, but not at that full level, because and they I, saw those injuries. And I hear that a lot from parents who come in to see me. Well, we have to train year-round, because if we don't, we're going to fall behind everybody else. And I'm like, I don't think you do, at 10 years of age, have to do that. Maybe at 13 or 14, I get where that starts to become right. that situation. Right. But at, at 8, 9, 10 years of age, I think it should, well, years ago when I worked at KU with Larry Brown, the basketball coach, he said something to me that stuck with me. I've shared it on this show many times. He thought kids should play an individual sport and a team sport, and they should rotate around throughout the year. Because from both perspectives, it's important because in a, a team sport, you're going to learn about sharing, sacrifice, working together. Individual sport, you're going to learn about building your confidence. So to me, I think doing both, you, you can play two sports at once. I wouldn't do more than that. Right. And I would rotate around throughout the year. But sticking with one, eventually you're going to get that overuse. And by the you know, kids start at 5, 6 playing baseball, by the time they're 12, 13, you're, you're seeing a lot of these elbow injuries now with kids. I think that's an excellent analogy, and I think it actually goes to that kind of cross-training. You're cross-training your brain for team versus individual sports, and I think that's an outstanding concept to get kids involved in individual sports as well, um, to develop that part of their brain, that part of their psyche, and their um, confidence in their own abilities. So it really starts then with the parents, and sometimes you'll have to have conversations, like I said, not that often, but once in a while you may have to have a conversation with the parent with their child about maybe you need to slow down on the training, things like that. That's correct. And is that a difficult conversation for the parents sometimes to hear from you? Usually it's not because they're in there for after an injury, so they're already trying to assess what they're doing. Rarely is this conversation happening at their annual physical, because then they're as excited for the new season and they're all geared up, but after a significant injury, you're having this conversation about what, what happened to cause this, and what can we do to prevent it the next time? I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. My guest this morning is Dr. Neil Erickson. He's the team physician for sport in Kansas City. He has been since they began playing in 1995. He knows a little bit about sports and injuries and things like that. We're having a great conversation this morning. If you'd like to join us, if you have a child playing sports, maybe they've got an injury issue you want to overcome or deal with or you're questioning about, give us a call. If you're an athlete, you've got something you want to talk about, pertaining injuries, give us a call. Every week we bring up topics like this, and I think this is a great one today because it's an issue everybody has to deal with if you have kids. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. I'm Dr. Andrew Jacobs. As a sports psychologist with 38 years of experience, I've worked with athletes, coaches, parents, and officials, assisting them at learning how to handle issues like sportsmanship, self-confidence, developing a positive realistic attitude, and achieving maximum performance. I want more people to know about the importance of having fun, learning from failure, and that winning is about doing your best. That's why I created the Sportsmanship Foundation, a 501c3 educational organization dedicated to promoting and educating parents and athletes about the role of good sportsmanship in our development. Our priority is to help bring back the fun into youth sports. 
If you're interested in learning more or making a donation, go to winnersunlimited.com slash radio. That's winnersunlimited.com slash radio. Doing your best, having fun, and becoming a winner. The Sportsmanship Foundation at winnersunlimited.com slash radio. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section. When dad injured his back, when your basketball star tore his ACL, opioids helped with the pain, and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Opioids are powerful pain-reducing prescription medicines, but most people who are prescribed opioids don't finish their prescriptions. So millions of unused opioids are sitting in homes across the country. And tragically, more than 100 Americans die every day from overdoses involving opioids. What can you do to protect your family? Remove the risk of unused opioids from your home. Pills, patches, or syrups in drawers, purses, and cabinets. Anywhere they might be hiding. To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with a sun protection factor, or SPF, of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. UVA rays age the skin, UVB rays burn, and both cause cancer. But the perfect sunscreen doesn't count if you use it wrong. Don't need sunscreen on a cloudy day? Wrong. 80% of UV rays still get through the haze. Only use sunscreen at the beach? Nope. Anytime you're outside, UV rays attack the skin, so you need protection. And you have to reapply sunscreen every two hours. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section. When dad injured his back, when your basketball star tore his ACL, opioids helped with the pain, and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Opioids are powerful pain-reducing prescription medicines, but most people who are prescribed opioids don't finish their prescriptions. So millions of unused opioids are sitting in homes across the country. And tragically, more than 100 Americans die every day from overdoses involving opioids. What can you do to protect your family? Remove the risk of unused opioids from your home. Pills, patches, or syrups in drawers, purses, and cabinets. Anywhere they might be hiding. To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. Good morning, everyone. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs, and this is the Sports Psychology Hour from our flagship station, Sports Radio 810 WHB in Kansas City. My guest this morning is Dr. Neil Erickson. He's the team physician for Sporting Kansas City of the Major uh, League Soccer and been there since their inception in 1995. He also has a private practice, works with all kinds of people. It, it's sports medicine with general general practice as well. And 
We're talking about youth sports starting off today, and we're going to get more into that now. And so, Neil, you know, you've known me a long time. You know what I do, and, and, and one of my passions is this whole issue of youth sports and having fun and getting people to enjoy the experience. You know, my book, Just Let Them Play, that I co-wrote with Jeff Montgomery and Pete Malone, where we talk about making it a fun experience. And so we, we started talking about, you know, the areas of specialization. Should we, I mean, when should a kid specialize? When do you think it's healthy to start to do that from a physical perspective? And what are, what are the most common youth sports injuries you're seeing now, you're hearing about? So the idea of specialization, I think it's not unreasonable to do that at the, you know, the first part of the teen years. It just depends on the amount of training. So you can't overtrain. I don't have a problem if somebody says my sport is going to be soccer at this age. But you've got to be careful that you're doing some other things, like you mentioned earlier, about doing some individual activities in the offseason, not full-on training, full year-round. And I think some of the clubs have recognized that, but in the bigger cities who are affiliated with the MLS clubs. But I think there's still some smaller clubs and some you know, in the more non-metropolitan areas that train hard year-round. So I think the, the difference is not necessarily the age as much as how much commitment is into that one sport. As far as some of the injuries, depends on the sport. I see a lot of foot and ankle and um, knee overuse injuries in soccer. They're just running all the time. And so they'll come in with Achilles or with plantar fasciitis, um, tendinopathies because of the same mechanism of of exercise over and over and over. Uh, Obviously with baseball, as you mentioned earlier, we're seeing the elbow injuries um, frequently because people are throwing too much. You know, there was a, for the longest time, it's, it, it was stated kids shouldn't throw fastballs until they're really 11, 12, 13 years of age because of the elbow injuries. And yet we're seeing this. This young man yesterday I saw, you know, he's, he used to throw as hard as he could, and now he's got this elbow injury, as did his brother. So how do we educate people about that? You know, because let's face it, coaches like to win. Kids like to win. Parents like to win. I have no problem with winning. Sure. But I think at the youth sport level, I, to me, winning should be a secondary even a third place type of thing is more of having fun, learning fundamentals, enjoying the experience. So where do we get to a point with people like, let, let's say you've got a young person who is starting to specialize maybe at 10 or 11 because for whatever reason, and they're starting to get some, they come in and they've got some aches and pains you think could lead to something. What As a physician, what do you say to the parents then about something like that, about, you know, you, you need to back off a little bit. I think you're, you're doing too much at, at, at an early age. And how do parents react to that type of thing? Right. So they're usually in my office at that point because of an injury. So it's a perfect opportunity to talk about why did this injury occur and not just, oh, bad luck or, you know, it was an accident, but there was something that weakened that part of the body. And then what can we do to strengthen that part and then the other parts around it so this doesn't happen again? and working with them to understand that how they're going to recover will determine how they're going to do down the road. So if they have another injury, so say the right ankle's hurt and then suddenly the left hip starts to hurt, then we look at what's going on with their activity, their practices, their um, recovery component to allow these injuries to keep happening. You know, I've, I've read a lot, which I do all the time in, in, in my field, and recently there have been articles written where Roger Federer and Alex Morgan have been quoted quite frequently, about how they didn't specialize in their particular sports, tennis and soccer, until they were about 13 or 14. They played a bunch of different things. And in fact, Roger Federer has been quite outspoken about kids playing one sport until they're about 13 or 14. He thinks they should play a number of different sports. And he says it was very helpful for him, and it's I allowed agree. him to continue it. You know, he's in his mid-30s now. Right. Alex Morgan's what, in her mid- late 20s now, and she's a mother as well. And obviously two of the top ever in their sports 
What do you think about that? I agree. I think if you talk to many of the professionals now, they'll convey the same thing, that they did multiple sports as a youth, and having that balance was actually fun. And, and going from season to season is an, an excellent thing to do to help them adjust their bodies. And I think it creates different team components. So in one team, you may be the captain and the leader. Another team, you may be uh, just a regular part of the team. And I think that helps with your physical and psychological development. Uh, instead of being one role your whole life, and then when something happens to change that, you can't handle it. Whereas if you're doing multiple sports, multiple situations, you can deal with that better. Uh, so I think that that um, non-specialization gives a lot of advantages, whether it's multiple team sports or team versus individual sports. Parents, to me, are part of the problem with a lot of these issues because they have these delusions that their child can be so great. I, I, I get that a lot with parents that bring their kids into my office. So as a physician, when you maybe pick up on something like that, how do you, sp how do you speak to the parents to try to get them to maybe back off a little bit on their, on their excitement about pushing? So I, I use some of my own personal experience and my experience in my practice. And what I will tell them is, you know, if they're a freshman, they come in and they're saying, oh, yeah, my kid's going to start varsity and he's going to get scholarships. I said, that's great. I said, but I would also plan in case he doesn't or she if they decide that they don't want to play that sport. I, my oldest son, who played prof or, um, competitive soccer as a youth, I remember when they were the top youth team at the end of their junior year, 17 of the 18 kids said they're going to go on to play college soccer. And lo and behold, a year later, two went ahead and did that. So things changed. Because? Kids they just got burned out on the sport. They wanted to go get a college experience. They wanted to get a job. They wanted to go to the military. Lots of different reasons. But the point was what they thought they wanted to do at 15, 16, 17 didn't really happen. You just hit something right there, get burned out. Okay, and, that, I, I, and I want to emphasize that for a second because as much as I love sports participation, I'm seeing that a lot now in the last two, three years, more so than I ever have before. Kids, their junior and senior years of high school – are burned out of their sport. I had a college soccer player that a, a college coach referred to me this past fall, who was a freshman on a big-time scholarship, and he came in and said, Dr. Jacobs, I don't want to play anymore. I don't like it. I'm burned out. I wanted to quit two years ago. My parents made me keep playing and said, you're going to get a scholarship, and I did. Well, you know what? Two weeks later, he, he just up and left, packed up his stuff and drove home and showed up at his parents' house said, I'm done. I'm quitting. He didn't even tell the coach, which was wrong. And yeah. just left. Yep. He said, I've had it. And the parents were furious, but, was, but he said, I'm not playing anymore. You've made me do this. I don't like it. I'm tired of it. Right. And they didn't address the psychological component throughout those years. It was all about his physical performance and his success in that field. And so that was never addressed, and it was never discussed. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. I'm Dr. Andrew Jacobs. As a sports psychologist with 38 years of experience, I've worked with athletes, coaches, parents, and officials, assisting them at learning how to handle issues like sportsmanship, self-confidence, developing a positive realistic attitude, and achieving maximum performance. I want more people to know about the importance of having fun, learning from failure, and that winning is about doing your best. That's why I created the Sportsmanship Foundation, a 501c3 educational organization dedicated to promoting and educating parents and athletes about the role of good sportsmanship in our development. Our priority is to help bring back the fun into youth sports 
If you're interested in learning more or making a donation, go to winnersunlimited.com slash radio. That's winnersunlimited.com slash radio. Doing your best, having fun, and becoming a winner. The Sportsmanship Foundation at winnersunlimited.com slash radio. Hi, Grandma. What's for dinner? Hey, honey, I'm making stew tonight. Ooh, can Nina come over? I'm not sure about our new friend. I wonder if there's been any drinking going on. Alcohol at her age can lead to so many bad things. I've been meaning to ask you, what would happen if someone offered you a drink? Grandma! This is hard. She's so young. But I know I need to talk to her about it now before someone tries to give her alcohol. If anyone ever does offer you a drink, I want you to say no. I have too much respect for my family and I don't want to get in trouble. Okay. Really? I promise, Grandma. I love you too. Okay, how about tasting this stew and telling me what you think? Mm. Some children may try alcohol as young as nine years old. It's not too early to talk about drinking. For tips on how to begin the conversation, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. That's underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This message brought to you by SAMHSA and this station. All right, crew, let's get her dug. Honey, you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember? No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number, alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project, so you can avoid hitting our essential buried utilities. This includes natural gas and petroleum pipelines, electric, communication cables, and water and sewer lines. So before you do this, or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811 brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. If you suffer from COPD symptoms like shortness of breath and fatigue, where do you turn? There are medications and oxygen, but do you know about pulmonary rehab? Three out of five COPD patients have never heard of it. Pulmonary rehab is an exercise, education, and support program that gives you tools to manage your condition, and Medicare typically pays for it. So whether it's grocery shopping on your own or just walking across the room, pulmonary rehab can help you. Visit livebetter.org to find out about your options for pulmonary rehab today. Here's farmer and landowner John Prue. We purchased the land about three years ago, and there was an old farmstead on there with trees. We were going to clear the land so we could farm through it. We thought we knew where the pipe was, so we didn't call to get it located. The work on our property led to the damage of a light crude pipeline. Fortunately, no one was hurt, but it could have been much worse. Never assume the location or depth of underground lines. Always call 811 or visit clickbeforeyoudig.com before you start work. A message from the Pipeline Operators for Ag Safety Campaign. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. Hello again, everyone. I am sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. This is the Sports Psychology Hour from our flagship station, Sports Radio 810. WHB in Kansas City. My guest today is Dr. Neil Erickson. He's a team physician for Sporting KC, our MLS team here in the Kansas City area. He's been their team physician since the team started playing in 1995, back when they were known as the Wizards. Then Actually, they, the Wiz. The Wiz, excuse year. me, I was going to say. One year. Then they became the Wiz. I got That's it backwards. Right. They were the Wiz. 
Yeah, that was there. There, there are some great lines. Then let's go. Let's go take a whiz, right? Okay. So anyway, we, we're not going into that this hour of the morning. Um, sports. You know, we we we've been talking about youth sports and youth sports specialization, and I want to get into the concussion area here in a second. But winning and losing, Neil. Okay, you've been around. You've 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 been with this team. They've won championships. They last year they they didn't make the playoffs for the first time forever. Okay, right. winning and losing to me. Our results, and I always talk when I work with people. It's, let's focus on your effort, and your attitude, and your execution, because that will give you the result you want in the end. Maybe not initially, but learning how to fail, learning how to lose, learning how to deal with negativity, is such an important component of this. And, and one of the things that I that concerns me with a lot of kids' sports is you have some overzealous parents and coaches who are all caught up with winning a championship for their eight-year-old, and you know getting a trophy and all that type of stuff. Right. You know, there's the whole discussion about should we give trophies to kids when they first start playing and all that type of stuff. But um, do you think kids, and this is something that I, I have a belief very strongly in, I don't think kids learn how to lose the right way. They're not taught how to lose very well. Right. I think it's very important in your development. What we're talking about is sports development, not being a professional. But in sports development, you need to learn how to win and to lose. If you're always going undefeated every year, you're not really helping yourself. So I always tell parents, one of the best seasons if you're just above 500 that season, meaning you lost some, you won some. And how did you handle that loss? Did you grow? Did you get better? I don't care who you are, you will experience some defeat at some point. And if you don't know how to do that until you're a late teenager, you're not going to handle it very well. So I'm a big believer in putting your kids in a level where they're going to have some success, some failure, and then teach them how to handle that. They need experience on how to handle that failure. Okay, so what's the best way to handle it? What's the best way to learn from it from your perspective? As a, as a medical doctor, you see in, in, in pro locker rooms, and you've, you've, you've got kids, you've seen the whole level, you've, worked, you've got kids that have played every, at every level. How do they learn the best way from your perspective as a physician? I think as the best— As well as, as a parent. As a parent, and, as a, and I was a coach as, as a youth coach, is let's assess why did we not have success? What did we do wrong? Was it a— physical failure or a mental failure? Was it a not a team effort? Was the team just better than us? There's a lot of factors and sometimes the team or person will just be better than you and that's okay. How do I handle that? What do I do next time to make sure that I have that edge? And so it's really about assessing where you are, assessing what you did to prepare for that match or game, and then changing those behaviors, changing those patterns. See, I think a lot of this, and I, I've talked about this forever on the, the 29 years I've been on radio, there needs to be a preseason meeting by the coach with the parents and the kids. Talk about the expectations for the season. What are our goals? What do we want to do? How are we going to handle success, failure, winning, losing? How are we going to handle playing time? How are we going to handle injuries? All these types of things. And have a game plan so that when something happens. And, and then there needs to be a venue for communication with the parents, with the coaches. You know, A lot of coaches say, I don't want to talk to parents about the season. I mean, I hear that it's, it, with some 12, 13-year-old club teams. I don't want to talk to the parents. The kids have to deal with me. Well, sometimes the kids aren't emotionally developed enough to talk to the parents. No, the coach so, has to take the lead for sure. And I think that's a great idea, and I would always do that as well, is let's have a team meeting. What are our expectations? What are our goals? What are we trying to achieve this year? And if you're trying to achieve an undefeated season and not give up any goals or not give any runs in baseball, then you're probably not focused in the right direction. What we're trying to do is grow our our children in their sport and learn how to be successful. And and so the injury issue comes up, and of course, 
you deal with pro soccer players, and and we're going to talk about concussions now right. because let's face it, they happen. Right. You know, we've we've had players you've referred to me before have had concussions. Years ago, with the Kansas City Comets of the major indoor soccer league back in the '80s, I was their team psychologist for several years. Our goalie was Alan Mayer. You know Alan. Oh sure. One of the Alan, Alan my very first radio show in 1992. Right. Alan was my very first guest, very yeah. first show. Great, one of the greatest guys I've ever known. Love Alan. He wore a helmet. Nobody else wore a helmet in the major indoor soccer league. People made fun of him. And, and we got him. He signed here as a free agent. He came from San Diego and Las Vegas, played with the teams out there. And so, you know, we got him, and I started to get to know him. And one of the most competitive people I've ever known. In fact, we, we would play tennis, and he just – we went to go play tennis, one, to play tennis one time. He says, yeah, I've played a few times. Well, it ends up he kicked my butt. Ends up he was played number one in college all four years it was there. Like, just a little bit. Yeah, thanks for telling me. Anyway – but he wore a helmet, and, and I said, why? He goes, I don't want to get any more concussions. And that was back in the 80s. You know, people back then used to, used to not really get into that. Now, of course, the whole concussion discussion is all over the place. You're working with soccer players. So let's talk about it. How often are concussions happening now, and, and what's the best way to treat them, especially for kids? So, great questions. The, I believe the concussions in youth are getting a lot more attention as they should. And in the MLS, we're addressing this every year. We've been doing this for many years. We started with a concussion program before any of the other professional leagues had started that, working with the impact study, which is a computer-based model to see how your brain responds. Unfortunately, most athletes will say, oh, I feel fine, I'm good to go, because they want to get back out on the field. And when you start doing some actual testing of their brain performance, they're not near as good as they think they are. And concussions are interesting. Not everybody responds to a concussion the same way. You can have somebody who can get back in 10 days, somebody who can take three or four months to recover. Because no concussion's the same. Absolutely, they're all different. And we're learning more. What is the chemical reaction inside the brain that occurs after concussion and how long does that take to heal? We don't have great imaging to really assess that yet. We've got some scientific research programs going, but nothing that's available for the market. So a lot of this is subjective. How do you feel? How are you doing? And now some new objective performance tests of the brain, which has really significantly improved our ability to address concussions. So I, the, the incidence of concussions is going down because they have made some changes in the rules of the sport, especially in the MLS, um, emphasizing you know, not allowing players to raise their elbows up in the air and emphasizing, you know, giving cards to players who have more aggressive fouls. So I would say that the league has shown an improvement in doing things to reduce the frequency of concussions, but they're still going to happen. And so then how do you address that, and how do you identify it? What we're finding is a lot of times people may have a, a mild concussion, and they'll just kind of shake it off and think they're fine, and then another blow, which may not be as severe, happens very shortly after that, and now the brain is kind of set. So like second impact syndrome? Is that and not quite that severe. Second impact syndrome is where people have a massive swelling of the brain and a herniation of the brain and can cause death. But there's probably another subset where they get almost like a little bit of a bruising of the brain. It's probably not the right term, but some swelling starts enough to slowly uh, or cause some sm slight impairment of the brain. But then a second blow occurs that causes a more significant impact. Okay, so mental toughness. I've done many, many shows about when does mental toughness become mental abuse. When we talk about mental toughness, and let's take your, your sport of soccer as a team physician for, for Sporting KC, and let's go down to the youth level. Heading, okay? Heading is something I've always questioned. 
how damaging can that be? And I, I have had coaches who've, who I've talked to before said, my kids have to head the ball. They have to head it repeatedly. They can't be afraid to. If they're afraid to do it, they're not going to play. They don't want to head the ball. They don't want, you know, they, they're afraid of getting a concussion, afraid of getting hurt. Tell me about your perspective about heading, especially with young kids. Right. So there's been some guideline recommendation of not doing any heading until 13 or above. And probably because the musculature of the head and neck isn't strong enough to stabilize the head in order to do a proper head uh, maneuver. As a professional, players head the ball all the time. The data show that does not increase the risk of concussions. The concussions occur from um, head-to-head contact, head-to-ground, elbow-to-head, or getting hit in the head by a ball when you're not ready for it. But if you're preparing for it, tightening the muscles of your head and neck and hitting the proper part of the head on the ball, it doesn't cause a concussion. The problem is when you're 8, 9, and 10, you don't have that musculature strength to stabilize the head and the brain, and the brain's not fully developed um, or not even nearly developed, so there's a greater risk for that. So the majority of the leagues around now reduce that or try to limit that to over 13. They don't even teach it in the practices. But what, excuse me, but what if you have a coach, because I have had someone with this before, what if you have a coach for young kids who wants them to head the ball at 8, 9? What do you well, say as, a as a parent, parent, I would go to the coach and say, look, I think this is negative, and you can actually find those guidelines online and say this is not appropriate. I think you can make a play as a as a parent that way, no question. So it's important to stand up if, if the coach wants that, because there are because I've had kids in the last year who've at uh, one was ten, one was eleven, whose coaches wanted them to head the ball, and the parents had problems. With that. I said you need to talk to the coach about that. Absolutely. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. My guest today is Dr. Neil Erickson. He's the team physician for Sporting Kansas City our MLS team here in the Kansas City area. If you'd like to give us a call, if you have a question about your kids, about sports injuries, a great time to call up. We're discussing concussions now, especially if you have an issue with that. That's a hot topic, obviously, in the world of sports. And we're going to delve into that in our last segment as well. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. We're in the leader in sports, Sports Radio 810 WHB. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. I'm Dr. Andrew Jacobs. As a sports psychologist with 38 years of experience, I've worked with athletes, coaches, parents, and officials, assisting them at learning how to handle issues like sportsmanship, self-confidence, developing a positive realistic attitude, and achieving maximum performance. I want more people to know about the importance of having fun, learning from failure, and that winning is about doing your best. That's why I created the Sportsmanship Foundation, a 501c3 educational organization dedicated to promoting and educating parents and athletes about the role of good sportsmanship in our development. Our priority is to help bring back the fun into youth sports. If you're interested in learning more or making a donation, go to winnersunlimited.com radio. That's winnersunlimited.com radio. Doing your best, having fun, and becoming a winner. The Sportsmanship Foundation at winnersunlimited.com radio. Here's farmer and businessman James Wood. We farm about 3,500 acres. There's pipelines everywhere. The contractor working on my property did not have the lines located before he began work, and it resulted on a strike on a natural gas pipeline. Fortunately, no one was hurt, but it could have been much worse. Never assume the location or depth of underground lines. Always call 811 or visit clickbeforeyoudig.com before you start work. A message from the Pipeline Operators for Ag Safety Campaign. 
All across the country, people are coming together to speed up what we can learn about health. The All of Us Research Program is calling on one million people to join us as we try to change the future of health. For your family, for future generations, for all of us. Visit joinallofus.org and find out how you can become one in a million. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with a sun protection factor, or SPF, of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. UVA rays age the skin, UVB rays burn, and both cause cancer. But the perfect sunscreen doesn't count if you use it wrong. Don't need sunscreen on a cloudy day? Wrong. 80% of UV rays still get through the haze. Only use sunscreen at the beach? Nope. Anytime you're outside, UV rays attack the skin, so you need protection. And you have to reapply sunscreen every two hours. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. Hello again, everyone. I am sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. This is the Sports Psychology Hour. My guest today is Dr. Neil Erickson, the team physician for Sporting Kansas City, our MLS team here in the Kansas City area. And we've been having a pretty good conversation today about sports injuries, youth sports, and we're getting into concussions. And before we get in our last segment, I want to mention, you know, I've been doing this show for a while, and I've created the Sportsmanship Foundation. It's a Kansas nonprofit corporation. And it's a public charity that helps educate athletes, parents, coaches, and officials about sportsmanship and the mental side of sports. And the purpose is to improve sports performance in the lives of athletes of all ages and skill levels. So if you want to help me educate people, I want to grow this show, make the Sportsmanship Foundation a national show, you can click on my website, winnersunlimited.com, and go to the Sportsmanship Foundation tab. Click on and make a donation. It could be a dollar or whatever you want to do. But trying to get this show to become a national show through that foundation so i appreciate any help you can give me you know neil we've we've gotten into this concussion discussion and that can go on forever sure um i once had an athlete a high school athlete several years ago that came to my office he'd gotten a concussion and heat stroke passed out uh had to get get taken in an ambulance to a hospital he coded out in the ambulance they brought him back he was an offensive lineman one of the stars of the team and the coaches never came to see him in the hospital. Didn't even speak to the parent. Parents called the coaches up and said, well, we're busy with practice. Wow. And that kid quit quit football. Um, it took him six months to recover from the concussion. The heat stroke he got over pretty quickly. But the psychological effects of that lasted a long time with him. I would imagine. And he decided to go actually uh, into sports medicine. He's now in college. He told me, Dr. Jacobs, I'm going to go into sports medicine because of this. It's changed him. my perspective. Yeah. Coming back from a concussion... All right, and, and as we said earlier, every concussion's different. Everybody responds differently. I know you've dealt with multiple, multiple athletes who've had these. How do you work with someone about coming back? What's the best way to come back? How do you know it's time to come back when they're ready to go? So for the MLS, we have a very specific protocol that they have to follow. Um, first of all, is waiting until they're symptom-free. And so that is somewhat of a subjective 
assessment tool. They have to be honest about their symptoms. And the MLS has done a great job. Honest. Okay. Yeah. Excuse me for interrupting you yeah. right there. But you've got a pro player. His life depends on his career playing professional soccer. He wants to come back. No, I mean, I've never met a pro athlete who doesn't want to come back unless they're ready to retire. Right. So how honest are they going to be about that? Because they want to get back on the field. Right. So I think that was a problem years ago. I think the players are becoming more uh, informed. They understand the short-term gain of coming back too soon isn't worth the long-term effect on their brain. So I don't think it's, it's just education is the key right now. Educating the athletes that coming back too soon is going to cause a greater long-term consequence. So I think with all the CTE that people hear about, most athletes are aware they have to be honest with their symptoms. I'm sure some will still try to hide things. But in general, I find the majority of them are being honest about their symptoms. So once they are symptom-free as far as headaches, dizziness, lightheadedness, discoordination, then there's a series of tests that we do that are MLS-approved that every league follow, every team follows the exact same protocol. It's a multi-step protocol to return to play. Uh, the, the bigger thing that I find right now is how does somebody define a concussion? Again, we have scientific measures now. We have SCAT tests that we do on the sidelines. There's computer-based programs that we do. But there's that initial evaluation of did that hit blow to the head and that momentary something happened sensation, was that a concussion or not? So that's where a lot of the players struggle right now is trying to figure out, does this need to get into the protocol, we call it, for concussion? And I'm sure in, in other leagues as well. So it's that very initial assessment. When I, when I bumped heads with that guy, did I get my bell rung? Did I see stars? Was that a concussion or is that just my head hurts because I bumped my head? How do you know? It's, that's not easy. That is probably the hardest part is understanding that. So it's looking at how does their brain react afterwards? How do they perform? So on the sideline, we're watching them. Are they moving in a normal pattern? Are they responding in a way that seems appropriate? Obviously, if there's a stoppage of the game, we go out and do an assessment on the field, and the trainer will make a, an assessment that, again, is uh, uniform across the league. There's a series of questions they ask specifically about where they are, what's the score, what happened last, so th to see their orientation. Where are where are the team physicians during an actual MLS game? Are so, you on the sideline? Are you in the stands? Where are you? Right. The MLS created a, a program called Venue Medical Director, VMD, where there is a, a physician sitting right behind the fourth official between the two benches doing assessments. We also have a concussion spotter who's watching for signs of concussion. If Just like in the NFL, same exactly. thing. Exactly. So if there's signs of performance that's not right after a hard blow, they'll they'll alert us. And what would what would those signs be? If they're not moving like they normally would, if they if they're stopping, if they're rubbing their head, if they're making you know runs that don't seem normal in their behavior, um, so that kind of just watching responses, you know, the legs buckling or looking the diff different direction you would think they would, and they actually can zoom in on their eyes. They can watch their eyes if they're reacting. So they've got some. Pretty amazing technology. Have you ever had a player who you said you can't go back out, but they refuse to, to not go back out? They'll, they'll challenge you on it? We have not in our team. I've seen it in the league, and I've, it was at the greatest level at the World Cup several years ago. A guy clearly was knocked unconscious and went to cerebrate, which is where his arms went rigid. He came to, got back up. The team doctor pulled him off the field, and he just insisted and was let back on. And that led to a significant change in FIFA and the way they address concussions and educating the referees that if a physician is declaring this patient unable to play, they'll pull him off the field. That was pretty dramatic. Uh, most of the time, players 
although they don't want to come off, they'll acknowledge, hey, I'm not right. I want to I wanna do what's best for my team um, and what's best for my brain in the long run. So they'll ask to they'll ask, agree with that, and they'll, uh, they'll come off if we ask them to. Where does mental toughness fit into this equation? That's a great question. So it, it can be, be and, and I ask that because a lot of people will, you know, I, I can go back out there. I can tough it out. Right. Right? Right. And so a lot of this is education. And I think we're doing a, a much better job of educating coaches and parents about the long-term consequences of having a concussion. And, quote, being tough, toughing it out is not a good long-term solution. And the risks are much greater in the long run by returning to play when you're not ready. And so it's a definitely great question about toughing out a concussion is not the way to heal. So especially with in, in the realm of, of kids and high school sports, educating coaches specifically, because every coach doesn't have a trainer around, educating the coaches as well as the parents about this is so important, especially in the world of soccer today, with, with the fact that things can happen. Like you said, heading with kids heading the ball at a young age probably shouldn't happen. Right, exactly. <laughs> educating is the most important thing you can do to um, reduce the frequency, teaching players how to play in a safe manner, having referees stop play when it becomes too aggressive. I think okay, that's and, and before we wrap up here, you just hit on something. The referees, educating them as well, right? They need to understand somebody, they think somebody's had a concussion, they can stop play, right? Exactly. Yep. And that needs to go down to the youth level as well, educating those those referees about that and how they, they should be able to take the, the leadership to be able to stop play if something like that happens. That's correct. Listen, Neil, it's been great having you on with me today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Obviously, we've known each other a long time. Respect right. you immensely. You do a great job. If people want to get a hold of you, how can they reach you? So my practice is Kansas City Family Medical Care. Our number is 816-941-9030, or they can reach me through my email, through my concierge medical practice at Elite Physicals. It's N Erickson, N-E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N, at ElitePhysicals.com. You know, our shows are podcasted all around the world. I get emails from people in Europe and Australia, so you you might hear from somebody, Excellent. and hopefully you will. You're, listen, thank you so much for coming in and joining us today. I appreciate it. Your, edu- your your knowledge and educating people about what's going on with sports. Thank you, Dr. Jacobs. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. Hope you enjoyed the show. Our shows are podcasted here at Sports Radio 810 WHB. They're podcasted on SoundCloud. They're podcasted on my website, winnersunlimited.com. You can reach me several ways. Email me at drj at winnersunlimited.com. Send me an email there. Call me at 816-561-5556. You can follow me on Twitter at DRJ Sports Psych, at DRJ S-P-O-R-T, P-S-Y-C-H. Hope you've enjoyed the show. Love to hear from you with any comments or questions or topics you'd like to talk about in the future. I am sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs, and this is the Sports Psychology Hour. You've been listening to the Sports Psychology Hour. For more information, go to winnersunlimited.com. I'm Dr. Andrew Jacobs. As a sports psychologist with 38 years of experience, I've worked with athletes, coaches, parents, and officials, assisting them at learning how to handle issues like sportsmanship, self-confidence, developing a positive realistic attitude, and achieving maximum performance. I want more people to know about the importance of having fun, learning from failure, and that winning is about doing your best. That's why I created the Sportsmanship Foundation, a 501c3 educational organization dedicated to promoting and educating parents and athletes about the role of good sportsmanship in our development, our priority is to help bring back the fun into youth sports. 
If you're interested in learning more or making a donation, go to winnersunlimited.com slash radio. That's winnersunlimited.com slash radio. Doing your best, having fun, and becoming a winner. The Sportsmanship Foundation at winnersunlimited.com slash radio. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section. When dad injured his back... When your basketball star tore his ACL, opioids helped with the pain, and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Opioids are powerful pain-reducing prescription medicines, but most people who are prescribed opioids don't finish their prescriptions. So millions of unused opioids are sitting in homes across the country, and tragically, More than 100 Americans die every day from overdoses involving opioids. What can you do to protect your family? Remove the risk of unused opioids from your home. Pills, patches, or syrups in drawers, purses, and cabinets. Anywhere they might be hiding. To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Hi, Grandma. What's for dinner? Hey, honey, I'm making stew tonight. Ooh, can Nina come over? I'm not sure about our new friend. I wonder if there's been any drinking going on. Alcohol at her age can lead to so many bad things. I've been meaning to ask you, what would happen if someone offered you a drink? Grandma! This is hard. She's so young. But I know I need to talk to her about it now before someone tries to give her alcohol. If anyone ever does offer you a drink, I want you to say no. I have too much respect for my family and I don't want to get in trouble. Okay. Really? I promise, Grandma. I love you, too. Okay, how about tasting this stew and telling me what you think? Mmm. Some children may try alcohol as young as nine years old. It's not too early to talk about drinking. For tips on how to begin the conversation, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. That's underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This message brought to you by SAMHSA and this station. <laughs> 